but the fear of challenging the status quo, if you feel that you've done it truthfully and honorably, then, you know, that's a good fear. That's why I went into the business in the first place was hopefully to challenge the status quo in some little tiny way. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from my friend, Dr. Gita Pensa, about her podcast, The L Word. Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, is a self-contained podcast curriculum that uses interviews and storytelling to give you the practical and psychological preparation required to survive and even thrive during and after medical malpractice litigation. Hello, podcast audience. Welcome to today's episode where I'm in conversation with Nina Jacobson. Now, this woman, this woman in 2007 founded the independent company Color Force. Before that, she had already built an impressive career as a senior film executive at three major motion picture studios. She has produced the Hunger Games franchise, Crazy Rich Asians, and the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. With her partner, Brad Simpson, they have executive produced American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, and Impeachment. They also just completed production on Why the Last Man. So this is a fantastic conversation, and I cannot wait to share it with you. Turns out, I identified with a lot of things about Nina. Number one, she shared with me that she was valedictorian of her high school class. In other words, she was pretty committed to getting A's and A pluses. I identify with that. She also shared that when she went to college, she actually thought she might be a doctor. I identify with that. She also shared that she's a big, big reader of books, all kinds of books, all kinds of genres. I identify with that. Finally, she is completely committed to stories and storytelling. Yep, you guessed it. I identify with that. All right, enough. Let's get to the conversation. You've described yourself as ambitious, and people have said that you've advised them, just be yourself. And one of the questions I like to ask my guests is, number one, when did you realize first that you had a voice, and when did you start using that voice? And the reason I ask it in those two parts is often those two don't happen at the same time. Well, I I love that question um, because voice is at the heart of what we do. It's at the heart of what we look for. Um, It's the thing that I'm always on a quest for is to hear a distinctive voice, to be able to recognize one and then amplify it. Um, But for my own voice, see, I think I learned, I, I learned how to have a voice first through listening, which I think is really underrated. Um, and I think I be- became a better listener in college and then maybe especially in the years after college when you're less reactive, less sure of your self, less sure of how right you are about everything, which I think there's a high, very high level of certainty that you have about how right you are about everything at about that maybe peaks at about 21 or 22, and then it's a little bit downhill from there. Um, But to me, I think listening um, and hearing people 
and hearing who gets heard and who doesn't. Um, seeing so clearly that as a woman, you're always going to be interrupted more and heard less. And, um, and discovering that you better have something to say um, because you might not get that many opportunities to say it. Um, and that um, I think probably during my executive years in some ways, you know, um, I started out uh, after Brown, I started first as a, worked a document, in a documentary uh, as a, uh, for a documentary production company as a researcher and then um, realized I didn't want to do documentaries and I wanted to be in the narrative space. And so I was um, able through very remote and distant people who knew people who knew people. I was able to meet um, Lauren Shula Donner, who was a successful, is a successful producer still. And she was kind enough just to meet me as a girl trying to get started, um, who she really had no need to meet whatsoever. Um, and I started to do research on perspective features for her. So I would try to find a story in a subject matter. And um, I went from that to being able to be a script reader and reading scripts, doing coverage where you read, you know, you read the script, you synopsize, you give comments. So a lot of my voice was a written voice in a way um, at first. And then um, after working for producers for the first couple of years of my career, I ended up making the jump to being an executive at Universal. Um, and um, that was my third job in Hollywood. And the first one that I had not been either let go because of a strike or fired because of a shakeup above me. Um, so on my third go, I managed to voluntarily change jobs um, and went to what would be to my brown self, like antithetical to everything that I thought I liked, believed, and would enjoy, which is, you know, my grandmother had said when I was younger, like, I picture you in a suit someday. And I was like, it's never going to happen. You're just wrong. You've just pictured the wrong thing. Um, and sure enough, I became a suit and I loved it. I really loved being, um, around that many movies. It was incredible at the time. I think it was there that I really found my voice in a way, in a room full of mostly men um, around a conference table. Um, you have to make your case for your own movies that you're trying to get made, for the movies that you think we should or shouldn't be making as a company, um, for the talent that you believe in. Um, and the voices you're trying to advance. And um, I think that's probably where I realized that I had one and how to use it. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I really loved that environment. Strangely, the more, you know, sort of like um, Katie Lang, who had said that she gave up country music, she gave up performance art for country music. Um, because she found that the limitations made her more creative, that she created more with boundaries and um, a format in some ways than she could without. And I think I felt that way too, that there was, it was very liberating somehow to be in 
what could have felt like a very oppressive environment. It was also a very, very different time in the business. I will say that too, that I have reflected a lot on, you know, um, how fortunate I was actually to have come up through the studio system at a time when studios wanted eclectic slates. Uh, there's still big structural issues at play uh, in terms of equity, but the goal for a studio was to have a variety of pictures ranging on budget and ranging in genre and um, they've financed in different ways. There were so many different ways to get something you loved made. And that was an incredible opportunity to learn, to fail um, and still like live another day because you could, you could, you know, not every, there was never the expectation that you would bat a thousand. We share a love of books, and I wonder also if by reading, and I have a quote that I'm happy to keep working on books because I'm always reading and I'm always trying to fall in love. If uh, the more we read, the more books we read, the more different voices we read, uh, the stronger it makes our voices. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I'd be nothing without books. Nothing, honestly. I don't, I can't imagine. I, I have a, my wife will kind of, just marvel at, I have like almost a addictive need for stories. I, you know, um, I tear through long form articles, podcasts, obviously movies and television, but books, I, I, I mean, audiobooks, especially because of the fact that you can multitask and you can both get to work and listen to your book or, water the plants or walk the dog, et cetera. So um, I devour, like, I, I, I would say, I don't know, I probably read at easily 50 books in a year um, for fun, um, I would say, you know, and, um, and I, and, and, and they're pretty eclectic the things that I'll read. I'll alternate between fiction and nonfiction and on memoir. And right now I'm like on book three of this incredible um, fantasy series that was recommended to me by an, I a, an Irish author whose work I had fallen in love with and I had read all of his books. And then I got to meet him because I, that's like one of my favorite things to do is to fall in love with an author and then try to connect with them on Twitter and through DMs and then maybe you get to meet them. And like, those are my stars. That's my, you know, starstruck. And so uh, he recommended this series by Joe Abercrombie called the First Law Trilogy. And um, yeah, my wife, I have, it's, it's caused a big dent both in my productivity and in my personal relationships while I am so lost in this trilogy. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that there early on there's a woman that was uh, willing to meet with you when you were a younger woman, younger in your career. I read an article from 2012 that talked about your mentors, and I think there were six people listed, and they were all men. And I will share that in medicine, essentially all my mentors have been men. And so uh, I'm wondering how you can explain that and how you think about mentorship in terms of what you received and how you mentor others now. Well, say the, you know, my first, let's say the person who took the first chance was 
a woman and she took the chance because I was a woman. So that has always been Lauren Schuller, Donner, you know, that's something that, um, you know, whenever I would express my gratitude, you know, she would just say, you know, just do it for somebody else um, when it's your turn. And that's the same thing that I tell people. And, um, you know, I think mentorship um, is, it is something that particularly because there were so, I didn't know, I didn't even know any lesbians at all when I came and started working. And I was not, I was not very good at being in the closet, but I was sort of in the closet as badly. And I literally like would hear of a person being possibly a lesbian. And then I would like go and have to ask them to lunch just so that I would know a couple of queer women in Hollywood. Like it was, it was a desert on that front because so many of us were not out. And so um, bit by bit, you know, I built a community, but I think that um, the, with mentorship very often, I think there's a temptation for people to mentor people who remind them of themselves. And I think that's very dangerous actually, because that is how you kind of just reiterate the biases and lack of a level playing field that you've inherited is if you just keep looking for people who remind you of yourself, you will just have a whole lot of white folks making up the business, which is exactly what we have largely when it comes to where the power is at least. Um, and at the same time, yes, I would say that the people who mentored me, they were, because I came up in a corporate environment in the world of powerful white men, many of my mentors have been powerful white men. And, but in terms of the people who I mentor, um, they are, mostly none of the above. For, for people that aren't familiar with Color Force, um, how do you see that realizing exactly what you just shared about mentorship? Well, I think that, you know, there's, I mean, it helps really, I think, to be authentically curious and interested and to want to know things you don't know. And so, for instance, for me, when I read Crazy Rich Asians, like, I loved the book. I just, I read it in a weekend. I couldn't put it down. I loved being in this world that I never knew anything about. Um, and I noticed that right away, even just after I read the book, if I would walk down the street and see Asian people, I'd want to, like, listen, well, what language are they speaking? And, you know, are they from, are they local? Are they visiting? Uh, you know, I just got curious in a way that um, I don't think without the kind of immersion in like being able to walk in a world that you don't know, but that somebody else does know because of their life and their experience, in this case, Kevin Kwan, for me, it, you know, it is that empathy and feeling empathy for people who don't look like you don't have your background it is um it's everything because once you have at least when you've identified with somebody in a story and you've walked in their shoes 
I don't think you can ever look at that kind of person the same way ever again. Um, and so, um, because at the very least, you might be curious. And, you know, the way I was from first reading Crazy Rich Asians. And so that curiosity means having to go out and ask people who know what you don't know and be willing to put, to, to really advance the voices of those people whose stories you're drawn to and to both support them and scaffold them, but also to listen and not um, assume that your assumptions, which are deeply rooted in your own class, race, you know, gender identity, experience, etc., to not assume that those experiences are universal. And at the same time, to know that there are some things that really do feel universal and that in we all know what it's like to bring the wrong person home or to be the wrong person who was brought home. And that can happen a million, a million different ways, but we all know what that feels like. And we all know what it feels like to feel like you have to decide between the person you love and your family. And that, um, and to feel that that's an impossible choice and to care about two people who are, or three people who are put in that situation in the case of, uh, the story of Crazy Rich Asians and uh, see that triangle, which was really like the breakthrough in hearing takes and trying to figure out how to make that book into a movie. That triangle was like the breakthrough because we knew that that was something everybody could identify with. Um, and, and at the same time, that the more specific we became in terms of Rachel's identity as a Chinese American, you know, and Nick's identity as a Singaporean um, for his character. Uh, and what, to, the more specific we could be, the more universal it would become. Um, and so I think, you know, for Color Force, it's been about the quest for those singular voices who in their specificity are able to speak to universal emotions. Beautiful. I mean, 100%. And this goes back to the beauty of story, storytelling. And there is a universalism, a universality. Um, I've done medical work all around the world. And at the end of the day, honestly, everybody wants an education. Everybody wants food, clothing, and shelter. Universal. Universal. Doesn't matter where. And I want to quote from your Sundance 2019 Producers Brunch keynote speech, something that um, reiterates a bit of what you just shared. The power used to lie with a handful of studios and networks who controlled both the means of production and the means of distribution. With that power came rules. Here are a few I thought, quote unquote, and was taught as a young executive. Girls can identify with male protagonists, but boys don't identify with female protagonists. Black movies don't travel. Men don't like women as action heroes. Young protagonists don't sell. Gay and lesbian actors can't play as romantic leads. The underlying assumption was that white men were the O-positive blood type of representation. That idea that you can never go wrong with a white guy was promoted primarily by 
white guys. We made Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and then The Hunger Games came along. It turned out that you could make a movie with a kid as the lead, and that men and women had no trouble at all identifying with a female protagonist. Audiences of all ages and genders could see themselves in a complex heroine who wasn't defined by her love life. Yeah, there have been a lot of rules. And uh, no matter how many times the rules get disproved, there is a propensity for them to return because of the fact that the people with their hands on the levers of power are still the same people who had their hands on the levers of power when I was an executive. There were a lot of rules um, that I was taught as an executive and really with a lot of confidence too. Those rules were laid down as though they had like some strong scientific data to support it. Um, none of, I mean, uh, and, and what data they did have, of course, is a completely um, shaped by those same biases. Because if, for instance, you don't think black movies travel, well, then you don't send your black movie stars internationally to promote their film. You don't spend money to for your big international launch. You assume that it's going to be domestic if that's your bias going in. So you spend for a domestic opening or a domestic performance. And then when you don't get an international performance, it's proof of your theory that black movies don't sell internationally. Um, so um, comps are used oftentimes to determine what kinds of uh, movies get made at what price. So when you want to make Crazy Rich Asians, you go, we went and we put the whole thing together with John Chu, the director. We had our script. Uh, we had a budget for $30 million and we went to the studios and streamers and said, who wants to make this movie for $30 million? And when they went to go run their comps, there's no comps other than Joy Luck Club 20 years ago and, um, or more actually. And um, then like other romantic comedies with white people in them, basically. Um, and they'd be like Hitch or something like that. So um, those comps also then give rise to a continuation of the same assumptions and biases. So um, in terms of trying to, you know, break some of these rules, um, you know, what I've, the thing I've loved about being a producer and the freedom that I feel as a producer is that um, we only need one person to say yes to making a movie or a show. Um, and um, what risks you want to take, are, it's not, they're not risks on behalf of your shareholders, they're risks on behalf of your own company that, and when you take on a partner, then you share that risk with their sh shareholders. And, um, but I think to have the freedom to be curious and to be in pursuit of feeling empathy for characters who we might not other, otherwise know, um, that pursuit, you know, it takes a lot of forms. Let's say often it's about pursuing singular voices, finding 
somebody like Sarah Burgess, who wrote this season of impeachment, for instance, of American Crime Story impeachment. Um, Sarah is a playwright, somebody we have admired and pursued. Um, we knew we wanted to do this story about the women behind the impeachment story um, and the women who were marginalized and crushed by these events. Um, and they were marginalized before these events and then further marginalized and crushed by these events. And so we knew we wanted to do that, but until we found the right voice for it and matched the idea with the voice, it was just an idea. And so somebody like Sarah, who's so singular and who in her plays has such an incredible feeling for like the microaggressions that take place in these confined cubicles um, and how, and particularly in this story, say the, uh, your podcast is so quite spot on in terms of the invisible people, you know, Linda Tripp um, raged against her invisibility at Monica's expense. Monica probably would have loved to become invisible once she had been forced into a level of visibility that is unimaginable in terms of public shaming. Finding those, those, those singular voices and then finding the right stories either that they want to tell. Um, sometimes people are bringing us, they're like, I've always wanted to do something in this world or that world. But oftentimes it might be us finding source material um, and matching it with that singular voice. Yeah. Uh, I shared with you before we started, um, I saw an interview of Sarah Paulson uh, when the um, this season launched, uh, talking about the characters, talking about the, the how the story was being centered on women and women's experience. And she said, people hate women. And I'm wondering sort of your thoughts on that and, um, you know, how that played out both in season three, but also just in sort of this world, this country, the way things have moved and maybe even in Hollywood. Well, you know, it was hard not to notice that, you know, when Christian Bale, for instance, plays, you know, Dick Cheney, people love the transformation and critics are wowed by the movie magic that allows Christian Bale to be transformed. But when Sarah Paulson plays a character, which is an incredible transformation, um, it's become so like, how could she in some camps? Um, and it's hard not to miss the double standard. Um, I think that particularly it's been interesting on something with like impeachment just to watch people watch what you make. Like that is something I spend, I'm, obsessed with. I spend far too much time reading uh, what people say about our shows and movies on Twitter um, because I really want to know. Like, I really want to know. I just really, you know, it's a tree falls in the woods kind of thing. You want to know, like, well, what did you hear? And um, I think what I, with, with impeachment, I have been stunned, honestly. First of all, by the number of people who still I'm 
feel that uh, I w that the well the quote from there's a there's a scene in the movie where Paula Jones is being uh, doing a press conference and one of the journalists this is a direct quote from an actual press conference says Ms. Jones why are you doing this to the president um, and so that question um, and the feeling that you know the in the case of like Monica at you know all of 23 um, that some people still feel like if it weren't for her 9-11 wouldn't have happened <laughs> if it weren't for her uh, you know Trump wouldn't have become president if it weren't for her and that this kind of intense hostility that is still held by quite a few people towards Monica even today um, the impulse towards sort of the shaming and um, categorizing and um, wanting to shut her up in a way, that's still alive and well. And then with Linda, I think that Sarah Paulson and Sarah Burgess and, you know, Ryan as a director created a very dimensional version of Linda Tripp a person who does some appallingly awful things and hateful things, unforgivable things. Um, and we were really, I, I have to say, one of our biggest surprises was hearing that like her daughter, Linda Tripp's daughter said, you know, I just wish my mom had been there to see this. I think she would have felt like they, they got her at some level. And like, I would not have expected that necessarily, but I think what's interesting is that from the second that we started showing it to people, our first, um, like, you know, uh, we did a panel um, with the television critics and people were like, oh, Linda is just a loathsome, awful, hateful person. And, you know, people saying, well, I'm sure that Linda's this loathsome because Monica was a producer, you know, and to me, I, I think she does loathe some things, but it's just, you realize that people actually cannot see women outside of their biases and structural patriarchal lens in many regards in the same way that people of color remain, I think, largely either invisible, silenced, misunderstood, um, spoken for um, instead of asked to speak. Um, and that uh, the degree to which watching, just watching people watch the show, how many of the themes which seem like post Me Too would feel historic, but actually feel quite alive and well. And in fact, I did say to, to Sarah, as we entered into this, like, yeah, you can never forget how much America hates women. And if you do, you'll get reminded. And like our premiere was right after the Texas you know, striking down in of, of Roe v. Wade in Texas. And the, it was the, the next day. So you can always be reminded. Is there ever any fear, fear in producing a show uh, that is telling a truth, is telling a perspective that you know people may not want to see, read, hear? I mean, there's, I mean, the biggest fear, honestly, is just that it won't, that, that nobody sees it. You know, you're really hoping if you're going to put all of this sort of time and 
and effort and blood, sweat and tears into making something and you know how hard people around you have worked, our crews, our cast, our writers. Of course, you want people to to see it. That's your biggest fear is, well, what if I make something that nobody even cares? And we just did all of that and spent all that money and it just doesn't matter. Um, I feel more afraid of that usually than of, um, you know, a bad review. But I would say that, you know, you're mostly, you know, you just want to get to be able to keep telling stories and you want to just keep being able to have the privilege to keep doing it. Um, and so the fears are like, well, you know, you don't want to lose your chance to do that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I also think I'm a big believer in um, once you've had your turn, knowing also when to walk away and let somebody else have theirs. Yeah. Is there any fear in telling the truth though, things that may be controversial, things they, that may shed people in a bad light? Well, of course, there's, there's always fear that certainly any, that particularly, I suppose, that, some, that people will take from something that you've made an idea that, you, that, that feels uh, reductive or harmful. You know, you don't want people to harden their hearts because of something that you've done um, or something that you've made. But the fear of, you know, sort of challenging the status quo, um, if you feel that you've done it truthfully and honorably, then, you know, that's a good fear. Um, that's, you know, uh, why I went into the business in the first place was hopefully to challenge the status quo in some little tiny way. What a great conversation. And Nina is a rock star. So if I were to provide a few recent reflections, I would say number one, you can really tell a lot about someone through email. Number one, if they email respond, if they don't email respond, and number two, the warmth with which they respond and the content of that email response. I reached out to Nina in May of 2020, asking her to join for a podcast episode. I had really just started the podcast, and I really liked her work, and I thought that she and I would have a Venn diagram of overlap regarding male-dominated industries, equity, and finding one's voice. When I reached out, she actually was not able to connect at that time. This is what she wrote. Hi, Risa. Thank you so much for the invitation. I always want to say yes to a fellow alum, but I'm honestly a bit underwater right now, juggling childcare, homemaking, work, and quarantining. So I'm hesitant to take on any more commitments until life, hopefully, gets more normal and more productive. The good news is, life did get a little bit more normal and a little bit more productive. What I'd ask all of you to do is please get vaccinated and also please watch Impeached, American Crime Story. It's important to watch stories, read stories, tell stories, and share stories. Only then can we potentially pivot and change culture so that everybody's voice is heard, 
so that people are not marginalized and people are not made invisible. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>